Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the chance that we can come together and once again consider your word. Lord, we need it because it points us to our Savior Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that as we think through what it means that our Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, that, that we need to abide in him, that you'd grant us the grace to do so, that you would change and transform us as we're connected to the life-giving vine. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. We'll be looking at this passage over the next couple of weeks. Next week, we'll focus on the joy he talks about in verse 11, especially in the middle of difficulties and loss. But this morning, we're going to look at what it means to bear fruit. And so let me begin by asking you that question. Especially in light of the unique season that we're in, do you feel fruitful? By that, do I mean, do you feel like your life is spiritually profitable? Do you feel like you're both standing firm and moving forward? If someone were to ask you, how are you doing? Would you be able to say, thriving, or flourishing, or excited, or, or living a life of joyful worship. I'm hoping that's true for some of you, but I've talked to enough people to know that, that for many, this is an area, along with joy, that COVID has seemingly robbed them of. You just don't feel as fruitful right now. Maybe because of safer at home, things like anger, frustration, impatience, discontentment, and selfishness have just boiled to the surface. So rather than being more godly than you were six months ago, you feel less godly than ever. Or maybe it seems hard to love others and, and to serve and to minister, especially when church is largely online and, and you don't see many people. Maybe trials have taken their toll and you're discouraged, anxious, lonely, fearful, depressed, hopeless. Maybe you feel spiritually lethargic and simply waiting to, for things to return to normal, kind of stuck in this rut of life at home. So again, let me ask you, do you feel spiritually fruitful? Now, our temptation is to think, kind of like I described it, that COVID has robbed us of these things, as if there's this direct correlation between circumstances and fruitfulness. I mean, maybe you've thought at some point, okay, if only this weren't happening, then I would be doing so much better. Or once this is over and things return to normal, then I can kind of get back to living life. But it would be a mistake to connect too intimately our faithfulness with our circumstances. Because in the, in the passage that we're going to study this morning, Jesus tells us that fruitfulness is not ultimately about our situations, but about our Savior. And so let me read to you the passage. Remember, it's, in the, it's the night before his crucifixion. Jesus' public ministry has largely ended, and here he is alone with his disciples. They're about to experience the worst moment in their lives as they will be witness to his murder. And even though the resurrection is coming, it will simply put them on a path where for the rest of their lives, they will suffer for the gospel. And so these words are weighty. They're Jesus' final opportunity before his death to strengthen and prepare his disciples for what is to come. With that in mind, hear the words of our Lord. John chapter 15, starting with the verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, 
thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is somewhat uh, of a famous passage and, and fairly clearly the key theme is to abide. It's used 10 times in these verses, in these 11 verses. And so Jesus is telling them if they're both going to survive and thrive, they must abide in him. Now we'll discuss what abide means in more detail in a moment, but I think we could simply summarize it with this idea. Apart from Christ, we cannot live the Christian life. And I'll read verse five many times over the course of this message because it's so crucial to the understanding of the Christian life. And I pray that you'll, you'll commit it to memory and let it take root in your hearts. But in verse five, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now you can do nothing obviously isn't referring to an inability to do anything, uh, get your oil changed, make dinner, hit a jump shot. But though those two are by grace, Jesus here is referring to our inability to accomplish anything a prophet spiritually. Again, apart from Jesus, we cannot live the Christian life. Now, on one hand, this is a sobering reality. We are helpless on our own. Jesus isn't preaching a message geared at elevating our self-esteem. It is truly humbling. But with this truth comes hope. I mean, real hope, needed hope, life-changing hope. We are helpless, but through Christ, we can live fruitful lives for God despite what is going on around us. And again, remember that Jesus was speaking to men who would witness his murder, live their whole lives suffering for the ministry of the gospel, with most of them ultimately dying as martyrs for the faith. And he was telling them they can bear fruit for God. And what this means for us is that despite all that is happening, really one of the more unique and challenging situations that many have faced, we can be fruitful and joyful. Consider that again for a moment. This could be a time of incredible growth and ministry fruit. Despite the pandemic, because of Christ, we, we, we can grow towards our Savior and away from sin. We can be deeper into the Word and deeper into prayer and less into the world. We can love others more and be bothered by others less. We can share our faith more and complain about life less. We can bless and build up others more and be selfish less. We can even be joyful more and discouraged less. So how is this possible? We must abide in Christ. Jesus doesn't say that faith, fruitful living is about how long you've been a Christian, uh, something that just some believers are wired for, or even about knowledge and, and how much you know. You could be a middle schooler sitting in on your first service, a mom exhausted with young children, or a retiree who has just come to faith, but if you abide in Christ, you can live for Christ in ways beyond what you can possibly imagine. And that leads to our key idea for our passage this morning. To live for Christ, we must abide in Christ. To live for Christ, we must abide in Christ. So let's look at the, at the, the priority and the picture of abiding in Christ. First, point number one, the priority of abiding in Christ. We must abide in Christ over anything else. As we think of diagnosing our spiritual health, we need to realize how central Christ is. Our air condition went out last week, 
And of course, I know nothing about how to fix it, so we called a repairman, and it took him about 60 seconds to diagnose it and about 10 minutes to fix it. I think he said something like it was the actuator, which means absolutely nothing to me. Right? He could have said that it needs an organ transplant. And because of how soft I am and how much I love AC, I would have donated a kidney. But the key to fixing the problem was the correct diagnosis. As we think of why we are not fruitful in the season of life, we might be tempted to look at things like circumstances, other people and what they're doing, safer at home, lack of church. But ultimately, we must look to our relationship with Christ. Right? We must abide in him. Now, we'll look at a more practical definition of abiding in a moment, but for now, realize that this term abide more literally means to remain in something or even to, to live in it. And it pictures the intimate relationship that believers are to have with Christ. We are to remain in Christ. To illustrate this, Jesus used a picture of, of branches that must be connected to the vine in order to not only survive, but to bear fruit. I'll talk a little bit more about agricultural next week, but, but this picture of the vine would have been somewhat familiar to the disciples because it finds its root in the Old Testament. Now, typically, it described Israel. Israel was the vine that was meant to bear fruit. And usually, when it was used in the Old Testament, it was an indictment on Israel for not bearing fruit. But here, the metaphor changes a bit, and Jesus declares himself to be the vine. So no longer is Israel the focus of God's plan for redemption, it's Jesus himself. Andreas Kostenberger, quoted by John MacArthur, describes it this way. Theologically, John's point is that Jesus displaces Israel as the focus of God's plan of salvation, with the implication that faith in Jesus becomes the de decisive characteristic for membership among God's people. In other words, salvation only comes through Christ. Now remember, this is in contrast to the Pharisees and much of the religious establishment's method of salvation by works. They believe that someone could, could earn their salvation by, by being a moral person or performing religious rituals or being of the right ethnicity. But Jesus says that, that apart from him, it's all meaningless. Remember, because we're sinners, we all deserve punishment for breaking God's law. I think one of the greatest myths and dangers to humanity is, is the, the myth of autonomy, as if we exist in a vacuum answering to no one, when in reality we were made by God, for God, to love him and be loved by him. He created us to live joyfully for him. So, so every time we don't, our sin means we are rebels against the king of the universe. And the thing is, nothing we can do will change that. Often you hear people make the argument, okay, even if there is a God, I'm basically a moral person. I, I do a lot more good than bad. But do you see the weakness of the argument? They're saying, on the scales of justice, I do a lot more good than I do bad, so I should not be judged for what I've done. But that would be like a criminal standing in a court before a judge saying, hey, don't send me to jail for the crimes I have committed, because on the whole, I keep more of the laws than I break it would be too late. They, they've broken the law. They deserve punishment. It's too late for us. We are sinners who have broken God's law. And so apart from Christ, we are damned. And this is why Jesus offers the sobering picture of judgment in verse 6. It says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. He wants to make sure that in no uncertain terms, people aren't fooled into thinking that they're saved when they aren't. And understand, this would have been shocking to just about everyone in the Jewish community. Because Jesus was saying that the, the devout and the moral religious elite 
were condemned because they weren't in a relationship with Christ. They were dead branches, unconnected to the vine. And so his point to the disciples was they, they couldn't look to, to morality or ethnicity or religiosity. They needed to abide in him. They needed to remain in him, look to him, trust in him, be in relationship with him. Now this, of course, applies first to salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. That's why he says this in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. He's arguing that salvation comes through the gospel that he preaches and that he will accomplish. This was the building off of the discussion with Peter at the foot washing when he talked of being clean. But the idea is that though we are dirty with sin, we can be cleansed through the death of Jesus. And the reason is that when Jesus would go to the cross on the following night, he took the sins of everyone who trusts in him and then he was punished for it so that we wouldn't have to be. So he, he was our substitute. He took our place. Does that make sense? Jesus went to the cross and was treated like he lived my life so that I could be treated like he lived his life, like I lived his life. Jesus bore our sins so that we could put on his robes of righteousness. Psalm 51, 7 describes it this way. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If you don't know Christ, thank you for joining us. I truly wish we could have a conversation in person. But I hope you will consider what the Bible says, what it means that we are not autonomous in this universe, but we will meet our creator one day. And in that moment, it won't matter how moral you were, how religious you were, how successful you were, the achievements of your kids, your finances. The only thing that will matter is if you trusted in Christ as your savior. He is the vine, we are the branches. The question is, are you connected to him through faith? Now, if you're a Christian, you know this. This is the, the gospel we embrace, the gospel we rejoice in. But where we often make a mistake is in trusting in Jesus for eternal life, but not everyday life. As if salvation is Jesus' work, but living the Christian life is now ours. That's how I kind of understood it growing up. I was, I was saved by grace. But if I want to be a good Christian, it was about some form of a spiritual willpower or trying really hard to do more. But we are saved by grace and we also need to live by grace. Paul says this in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So, so what is our call? How do we live by grace? We must abide in Christ. Again, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now we'll look at what it means practically in, in the next point, but realize that it begins with this simple premise. I think something that each of us must embrace. I am helpless and the world offers no hope. Again, this is in contrast to not only what the Jewish religious establishment was holding to and teaching, but really in contrast with a sinful bent of humanity's hearts, right? That will often seek to, to place our faith elsewhere, to abide elsewhere, to hope elsewhere. But as Jesus teaches, it is futile. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Like a branch disconnected from the vine has no hope of bearing fruit, neither do we apart from Christ. And so let me ask you, does that describe the conviction of your heart? I am helpless and the world offers no hope. Let's quickly break down those two ideas so that we might better embrace those realities. First, I am helpless. Now, right away, you may feel this idea grating against our culture's understanding of personhood as it constantly preaches the false gospel of self-esteem. 
we, we are told to believe in ourselves, love ourselves, take pride in ourselves, that we need self-esteem, self-actualization, self-love, self-confidence, all the while missing the reality that life is only lived rightly when we refuse to love ourselves and believe in ourselves and instead to love Christ and believe in him. But even more than that, if we're honest, it grates against our prideful hearts. Usually we spend our lives trying to, to demonstrate self-sufficiency and self-reliance. We strive not just for competence, but excellence. From school to sports, from work to parenting, we want to be successful, largely based on our own intellect, talent, hard work. We want to be admired, looked up to, respected, esteemed. But it's a fool's errand. We are helpless. It would be like telling an infant, you don't need parents. You need to believe in yourself. You need to love yourself. You need to have greater self-esteem. It's ludicrous because that baby dies if someone does not take care of him. And, realize, and yet realize that baby has a better chance of surviving on their own than we do apart from Christ. So if we're going to pursue the grace of Christ, we must live by the conviction that, that we need Christ and that apart from him, we can do nothing. We might describe it as a humility that is rooted in a healthy, healthy helplessness. And I understand this is not a small issue. It's not just Christianese or God talk. If we don't live with this conviction, we won't abide in Christ. We'll try to do life on our own and not live every moment by faith in him. I mean, think about an area of life that you don't feel very fruitful. Maybe a sin you can't seem to overcome. Maybe a struggle to love someone or maybe a difficulty in, in having contentment or being joyful. Understand, the worst thing you can do is believe in yourself and have high self-esteem. Because with that belief, you will fail to look to the only one who can actually help you. And on the contrary, the best place to be is to, to, to believe, I am helpless. I'm desperate. Apart from Christ, I can do absolutely nothing. Because when you really believe that, then you'll flee to Christ and try to abide in him by faith. So here it is that the first step to abiding in Christ is to realize that you can't walk on your own. It's to recognize just how desperate for grace you really are. In God's economy, there is help and helplessness, power and weakness, ascendance and dependence. Okay, so it starts with, I am helpless. That's what we, did, we just looked at. But with that, we must embrace the second idea as well. The world offers no hope. And this idea that the world offers no hope should remind us not to look elsewhere. By urging his disciples to, to abide in him, Jesus is saying first, they must not abide in anything else. They must not rely on or turn to or trust in anything else. Because then, again, this is what the Pharisees and religious leaders were doing, looking elsewhere for hope and their own morality or their ethnicity or their religiosity, all the while missing the only one who could truly save them. So what are you hoping in? Not necessarily just for salvation, but, but hoping for life. Is it kind of your own hard work or intelligence or morality? Is it the end of safer at home or the, the church regathering? What are you trusting in? Or to bring it closer to home, <clears throat> don't simply think, what do you hope in or, or have faith in, but where are you residing? Where are you abiding? Because often in lieu of a greater hope, we will simply see contentment in the world. Maybe it's hours of watching TV or scrolling through social media or surfing the net. But if we're honest, so many of the things that we have looked to to fill the time have only dulled our appetite for Christ and numbed our souls to what is truly important. And so if this is the case, you should not be shocked that you aren't fruitful, 
that you aren't growing and thriving. The only thing you're intimately connected to is your computer. It is the vine and you are its branches. So again, we must live by the conviction, I'm helpless and the world offers no hope. If you begin there, you were on your way to abiding in Christ. I think one example before we move on to the next point. Uh, one of the places we've really seen this truth play out is in our counseling ministry. When, when people seek counsel, th there's certain things that can be really helpful, maybe a theological knowledge or hard work and a hard work ethic or commitment. But in my experience, and I think it reflects biblical truth, one of the greatest determiners of change and growth is humility. It's the, the recognition of their sin. It's their embracing of their helplessness. It's, uh, it's their refusal to blame others. It's their desire to deal with their own sin much, much more than they want others to deal with theirs. It's their prayerfulness. It's their eagerness to learn. I, I've counseled pastors who know more than me, but struggle to change because of their pride. And I've counseled new believers who, who wept over their sin and experienced radical transformation. Marriage counseling is, is a good illustration of this. Usually one of, one of the big determiners of change is whether someone comes in kind of owning their sin and really wanting their hearts to change, or whether they come in simply wanting their spouse to own their sin and for them to change. Backing up to the big picture, if you want to flourish right now in a time of COVID, start with recognizing you can't. If, if you want to be strong, recognize that you're weak. If you want to receive help, own your helplessness. The practice of abiding in Christ. Point number two, we must abide in Christ through abiding in his word and abiding in his love. So, so we need to, to abide in Christ. We need to be connected to him. Otherwise, our Christianity is fairly useless. One of the guys was fly fishing on Crowley Lake in Mammoth. He was on a float tube and he just bought a new anchor. And those are important so that you, you don't get taken along by the current, right? An anchor keeps you grounded in one place. Okay, so he found the right place to fish. He threw the anchor over and then realized that it was not attached to his tube. So, so he got to watch it sink to the bottom of the lake. In the same way, an anchor must be attached to the boat. We must be attached to Christ if we're going to experience his grace. To use the vine illustration, it's not enough for a branch to be really, really close to the vine. It must be attached to it. So, so we begin with helplessness, like right apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But this doesn't mean we, we don't do anything. Like we, we, we don't believe in kind of the let go and let God philosophy of sanctification. Rather, the passage is clear that we must abide in Christ. So what is abide? Like we said, it has the literal meaning of remain in or stay in. And in John's theology, it refers both to the, the state of being saved, so we're connected to the vine, as well as being sustained by grace. So we're being fed and strengthened by the vine. Again, consider verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so abiding in Christ recognizes our dependency on him and our need to remain in him. Specifically, to abide in Christ means we remain in Christ through faith. So understand, our, our faith allows us to, to remain in Christ. Like branches are given life-giving nutrients when they are connected to the vine. When we live by faith, we are connected to Christ and we experience the life-giving grace we need. So for example, as you think of the struggles uh, during a world changed by a virus, 
loneliness, dis discouragement, hopelessness, fear, anxiety, but is going to allow us to not only survive, but really thrive with hope and joy is our faith in Christ. So get that to abide in Christ means acknowledging we need Christ and so daily placing our faith in him. Practically then, abiding in Christ means, it means being sustained and strengthened by Christ through actively pursuing him in faith. Again, to abide in Christ means to be sustained and strengthened by Christ through actively pursuing him in faith. That makes sense? What might this look like? It's, it's seeking to trust him when things are difficult. It's praying throughout the day because we're convinced we cannot do things on our own. It's believing his word, uh, believing that it really explains life and gives meaning and direction. It's trying to love and worship Christ in greater ways. And again, the key to it all is faith. We, we abide in Christ and we live by faith in Christ, meaning that we must actively pursue him in faith. Now in our passage, Jesus gives us two specific ways to do this, through abiding in his word and through abiding in his love. So first, A in your notes, abide in Christ through abiding in his word. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Later he'll say, if you keep my commandments. Now next week we'll look at what it means when he says it will be done for you. But for now realize that the word is found fundamental to our abiding in Christ, to being sustained by him. Now this sounds like pretty typical Christianity, right? Read your Bible, we should memorize scripture, etc. But to kind of move this from uh, religiosity to, to a life-changing reality, we must consider how the word encourages our faith. Because again, we abide in Christ by living by faith in Christ. So to appreciate scripture, remember that the word is the foundation of faith and the fuel of faith. So, so first the word is the foundation of faith Be, because faith has to do with what we believe and the word informs that. Okay, so faith is, so faith is what we believe. For example, maybe you're sitting on a couch right now and watching and listening to this message. And that took a measure of faith. You had to believe that the couch wasn't simply some illusion or that there was no bomb in the couch or that the couch wouldn't turn into some monster and swallow you whole. Now, likely you don't consider that faith. But again, faith is simply what you believe. You, you believe the couch was safe and so you sat down on the couch. Faith in Christ is no different. It's based on what we believe to be true. So how do we know then what is true? That's the word. It informs our worldview and tells us what is real and what is not in light of who Christ is. It offers reality. So for example, COVID-19 seems a bit arbitrary. We don't know what's ahead of us. There are so many questions. It's not easy to tell who to believe about what. At times we'll hear about a spike and it seems like it's this uncontrollable adversary. But the word tells us that all that is happening is under the control of our wise and loving God. And so though there is tragedy, it's not tragedy without purpose. God is moving, he's doing something, he has a plan, even for a pandemic. So we abide in Christ by believing what the world tells us about the world we live in and the savior we trust in. Pastor David mentioned earlier that just the tragedies our country, our country is facing from a pandemic to natural disasters to racial unrest. It's really an unprecedented time for our generation. But if you abide in Christ by living in faith, it doesn't mean it makes any, make these things any less of a tragedy, but it offers true hope in the middle of them. So, so for instance, think of, of, about these promises and how if you abide in Christ by believing them, you would bear much fruit. First promise, you're not alone. God is with you. 
You are helpless, but God is in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. God has a purpose for the pain. God will strengthen and sustain you. God is infinite, meaning his plan may not make sense, but it's greater than we can possibly imagine. As we'll discuss in a moment, God loves you. Right? That, that's the world you live in. And of course, at some point, God will make things right. He will always triumph over tragedy. Really, the truths are endless, but, but hopefully you see the point. If you, if you want to abide in Christ, you must have your faith informed by the word. You must think of these promises and dwell on them. Continue with that same idea. Not only is the word the foundation of faith, but it's the fuel of faith. So when we say foundation, we mean that the word is at the heart of our worldview. When we say fuel, we mean that we, we need the truth to daily build and encourage and strengthen our faith. Okay, so maybe to the point, this point in the message, you haven't actually heard anything that's new to you, that you didn't already know. But does that mean that this was a waste of time? No, because as we think through truth together, it should fuel our faith. It should build up and embolden our faith. I mean, just think of our text. Again, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branch. Branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So he's telling, telling you, Christian, if you abide in Christ, you can bear much fruit. He's telling us to believe that, be encouraged by that, be transformed by that. And that's why we must read and study the word daily. That's why we must listen to sermons and, and, and read good Christian books. That's why we at Lighthouse are trying to produce so much content. And I would encourage you just to, to check out our, our, our YouTube channel because we need our faith fueled by truth. Second idea, be in your notes. We abide in Christ through abiding in his love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So if we abide in Christ, if specifically we live, so, so we abide in Christ if we specifically live life in, by faith in God's love. And this makes sense. Imagine a child in an abusive home. Their world is on edge. They, they live with fear. They might be embittered or angry. They lose hope. Why? Because they live in a world where the ones who are meant to take care of them don't love them. And that's a scary place to be. On the contrary, imagine a child who lives with the absolute conviction of their parents' love. It makes all the difference in the world. They know their parents will watch out for them and protect them and care for them. They know their sins will be forgiven, that their parents are, are seeking out their best interest. It even makes a difference in understanding something like discipline. Right? They can believe that discipline is done in love for their good. So if we, actually, if we live with the absolute conviction that Christ loves us, our whole world is different. And when we, see, we can see all that is happening, including a worldwide pandemic, not as an absence of his love, but somehow a demonstration of it. And it doesn't mean we understand all that God is doing, but it does mean we trust there is a loving hand behind it. With this in mind, let me, let me tell you what knowing Christ, uh, Christ's love doesn't mean. It, it isn't the promise of easy or good circumstances. It doesn't mean you can do what you want and God is indifferent to your actions. It doesn't negate the severity of sin. Rather, building our previous illustration, it's like a faithful parent and a child. The child lives knowing the parent is constantly seeking their good. This does not mean uh, always happy circumstances. They still might have to clean their room or eat their cauliflower, but they can trust that their parents are pursuing their good. So living in the reality of God's love means that, that we understand that God governs our lives based on his covenant love for us. And so we view life through the lens of that filter. 
It becomes kind of the starting point, a place to both understand life and a filter through which we interpret life. Now we're going to again we're going to consider this again next week, specifically in the context of difficulties in love. Right, that is often where God's love seems the most hidden, and yet in reality it's really very active. But for this morning, I want us to look at one more thing that I think is kind of an interesting aspect to God's love that Jesus mentions here. Look at verse ten: If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it says abide in His love, but it's to me, it's weird because where could I go where I'm not in his love? And that's why do I need to abide or remain in God's love? Doesn't he love me no matter where I am? And second, it says, if you keep God's commandments, you abide in his love. But this would seem to imply that, that if, I, if I, I need to earn God's love by being obedient. Does that make sense? In other words, a surface reading might conclude, if I obey God, then he will love me. And the better I obey God, then the better he will love me. So what gives? First, to appreciate what Jesus is saying, we have to remember that God's love for us cannot be increased or decreased by our actions. In other words, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. So no matter how great you act, God doesn't love you more, and no matter how horrible you act, God doesn't love you less. Continuing to build upon our previous illustration Think about, in a perfect world, a parent's love for their child. Kind of whether super obedient or super disobedient, it shouldn't make them love them more or less. Now, with that being the case, we need to realize that while our actions don't determine how much God loves us, they can affect how he loves us. Let me explain, explain by again returning to our parent-child analogy. To use maybe an extreme example, imagine I have two children. One is very faithful and obedient, and one is, is very rebellious. If the faithful child comes to me and says, hey, Dad, can I have $20 to go get lunch and some boba with my friends? The fact that he's faithful and, and responsible might mean, in love, I give him the money. But if the rebellious child asks for $20, and yet I know that in the past he's used that money to buy drugs, I would likely say no. Right? So I love both children the same amount, but how I love them is different. And if this is too kind of an extreme a situation, just think more simply about it this way. You love your kids no matter what, but doesn't their actions determine how you love them? Okay, if they're hitting a sibling, you will love them differently than if they're being kind to their sibling. If your child is late and misses curfew, uh, you're not going to love them less, but you will love them differently than maybe, say, the child who is faithful to their curfew. In fact, it would be irresponsible to treat them the same way, right? You might encourage a child for loving their sibling, but it would be detrimental if you encourage a child for hitting their sibling. Like, hey, great job for hitting. You really put your weight into that one. That should leave a mark. Right? You'd be the worst parent ever. So loving your child might include words of encouragement or times of instruction or discipline or challenge or laughing together or weeping together or correction or training, all depending on how they are living life. And that's important because that is actually real love. Love isn't simply indifferent acceptance. It pursues people's highest good. Back to our point, regardless of our actions, God's love is unchanging in its extent. After all, he already sent Jesus to die for us. How much more could he possibly love us? But he will love us differently and uniquely based on how we live. Listen to this picture of, of it in Hebrews chapter 12. In this passage, God talks about discipline with love. The author writes, 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more subject, be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see the picture? cannot be more clear. At times, God disciplines us to love us. Back to our point. When, when Jesus says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, he's not saying God will, will not love you if you're disobedient or God will love you more if you're obedient, but that you get to experience God's love differently and more joyfully in your obedience. Now, this doesn't mean uh, through your obedience you only experience good circumstances. We, we know that is not true. Jesus was perfectly obedient and experienced the cross. Rather, we enjoy the spiritual blessings that come with obedience. I think we see this in the very next verse, in, in verse 11. Again, we'll come back to it next week. But it says, These things I have spoken to you that, you may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So in our obedience, we get to really know the joy of the Lord and the grace of living for him. And this makes sense because in our disobedience, we don't experience true joy. We, we experience not only the guilt of our sin, but the consequences of that sin in our lives. Let me give you a, 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 just a couple examples. If you're struggling to forgive someone, God loves you no matter what, but you won't experience the true joy of the gospel. You'll be bitter or angry or disappointed. Every time you see them, your emotions will begin to take off and you'll know the pain of sin. But imagine for a moment you forgave them even knowing they don't deserve it, what then? You experience joy. You're free from the bondage of sin, free from the pain of anger and bitterness. And you can actually look at that person with love and experience the hope of God. What about selfishness? Usually we believe that if we get what we want, then we will be happy. But let's be honest, our selfishness is simply about our discontentment. We want and we want and we want. And needless to say, no one equates discontentment with joy. What happens when instead of living selfishly, we live selflessly? Then we are freed from discontentment and we get to experience the joy of loving others and seeking their highest good. Back to my point here. Living faithfully and obediently doesn't mean God loves you more. But it does mean rather than experiencing his loving discipline, you can experience his love through hope and perseverance and joy. Next week, we'll, again, we'll come back to this passage to, to again consider joy and, and, and specifically joy in loss. The, the picture our text offers is that of a vine dresser that prunes its branches so that it bears more fruit. But for now, let me just close with this. As you listen to this message, I, I hope you didn't hear, okay, just try harder to bear more fruit. Rather, I hope you heard, as you actively pursue Christ in faith, you can and will bear fruit. Ultimately, you just have to end up at Christ. 
just thinking of some of the conversations I've had just in this past week. Someone who found out that a family member is dying of cancer, a person needing wisdom on, on making a decision, a man struggling with, with lust, a pastor from another church tired from ministry, someone wanting to, to have greater faith and, and greater passion, a discretion over racial unrest, a counselor thinking through their case. Most of these were informal discussions, and yet ultimately, each of them ended up at Christ. And hopefully not in kind of this cliche way, like, hey, you just got to trust in Jesus, but in a more particular and powerful way that, that, is, that is where we must end up, abiding in Christ through actively pursuing in faith. Beloved, I really believe that, that this can be at this unique season of blessing. Obviously not because our, our circumstances are so great, but because our Savior is. And by abiding in him, remaining in him through faith, we can overcome our sin, defeat our, our loneliness and discontentment and hopelessness, and even find powerful, persevering joy during difficult times. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that as we abide in our Savior, as we live by faith in him, or we can bear much fruit. I'm sure for many who are watching this, um, myself included at times, Lord, we, we don't feel like we're being very fruitful. So, Lord, we need grace. So help us to believe and have the conviction that as we live uh, by faith in Christ, that we will bear much fruit. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.